So today is October 31st, 2018, and the title of this message is Redefined. I've been thinking a lot about uh, a few subjects these past few months. I've had a few words on my heart and mind, but it wasn't until the conference in Crystal Lake that, uh, that the Holy Spirit gave me revelation, and that kind of pieced together all the fragments and uh, it gave me the word that I have for you tonight. Um, it's funny. I've been accused multiple times uh, in the past that I always think and contemplate about things in a very cosmic man to, m- manner. I always look at the big picture. What, is, what are the implications that, of everything that God says and everything that God does? What are the implications of everything that we do and say? What is the final outcome? What do we... You know, what are all the implications in the broadest sense for what we say and what we do? Uh, this is actually the, uh, the second message that I've presented the pastor with. The first message was about a year ago, and uh, man, I, I was so excited, I was pumped. Uh, I, I met with the pastors, and uh, man, I started in Genesis 1, and I was going, and like an hour and a half later... I wrapped it all together with the tree of life and revelations uh, at the very end of the story. I'll, n- I'll never forget the words that came out of Eric's mouth. Uh, he said, well, that about covers it. <laughs> yeah, it did. So I'll try to keep it a little more focused. Narrowed tonight. Um, pinpoint it. So let's start in Genesis. Let's go to Genesis 3. Say overruled when you get there. Overruled. Wow, that was fast. Y'all faster than me. I know, that's, yeah, you got the good one. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Um, This is the first prophecy in the Bible. And here we see... Uh, the basis for the hope, the first promise, the prophecy of all prophecies. Amen. It's a prophecy of what someday a man will be capable of. What some man will be capable of. You know, capabilities are a funny thing. Limits. Potential. Capacity. Has anyone heard of, the, of a, a gentleman by the name of Roger Bannister? Maybe a couple. See, Roger Bannister did something that the world had long since deemed impossible. Since 1896, which was the first Olympics recorded, um, man has been working toward... Uh, running a mile in under four minutes. 
Um, try, try, try. Constantly trying to get it down. Books were written about it. It was a constant struggle to get a mile under four minutes. In fact, Roger Bannister wrote a book in 1951. And he said, Oxford's physiologists, doctors, and athletes themselves have contended that running a mile in under four minutes wasn't only impossible, it might actually lead to death. The body simply wasn't equipped to accomplish such a feat, they said. And so for 60 years, 60 years, men have tried to get their time down, get their time down, get their time down, year after year, decade after decade. Impossible. 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 Then in 1952, Roger Bannister did it. After 60 years of trying, mankind finally did it. Do you know how long it took the, set, the second guy to, to, to beat his record? 46 days. You, you see, the barrier had been destroyed and that myth had been dispelled. Every runner in attendance at the, at the event, every athlete on the sidelines, every aspiring child watching on television around the world knew that what we are capable of has been redefined. See, now you can't even be considered a professional runner if you're not consistently posting sub-four-minute miles. Now they're beating the four-minute mile in high schools. Uh, well, let's go to Daniel 10. Say objection when you, when you get there. Daniel 10, let's start in verse 12. Starting in verse 12, then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. Verse 13, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained here with the king of Persia. You know, we've read this verse a lot of times, but I picked out something that uh, I don't, maybe you haven't thought about yet. And it's the sheer power of, the, of a fervent prayer of a righteous man. Daniel's prayer moves the heavens shakes the spiritual realm in such a way that he brings an archangel into the mix. An archangel. Faster, stronger, and worth more in Scrabble than regular angels. (laughs) Michael contends with the greatest powers that exist. I mean, he is the angel. He's the spiritual entity that binds the devil. I can just see Daniel. Really, Michael? You sent Michael? I was just... Ugh. You know, I, I, I can see God up in, he- up in heaven. All right, who's, who's going to go get Gabriel out of this? Who's going to go rescue him? And then Michael's like, I will go. 
And all the other angels were, 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 were like, oh, yeah, Michael? Okay, yeah. I mean, I was going to go, but I mean, if Michael, if Michael's going to do it, ah, let him have it. Let, it, let, let him have it. You know, that, that kind of reminds me of uh, when the pastors, whenever they're like, uh, hey, who, who wants to pray? And then Bim, like, boom, hand goes up. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, Bim, no. Bim, you got it. No, Bim, you're good. Right? Because Brent, Bim prays with power and with fervor and with authority. Now, don't answer this, but I mean, we, I mean who can really, who can pray like Bim, right? All of you. All of you can pray like Bim. You see, because Bim sets his capacity of what he knows is attainable. He knows that he can pray with power. He knows that he can pray with fervor. And he prays with authority. If you think to yourself that you can't pray like Bim, it's because you've set your capacity at a level because you don't have the courage. And I don't have the courage to assume that we can pray like Bim prays. That's a good word. So, sorry, Bim. The next time pastors ask for a volunteer, you might have some competition. So I want to talk to you about another, another guy, because I really want to drive home this, this idea of capacity. In 1953, uh, Edmund Hillary broke an, another one of these barriers, <clears throat> another one of these limits. Since 1921, <coughs> a few tough men, a few men with... Grit, with chutzpah, have been trying to scale the top of Mount Everest. Most didn't just not make it; most died in the in the attempt. So, since 1921 to 1953, for 32 years they tried. Expedition after expedition after expedition, death after death. The funny thing is, the bodies are still there. Because of the, the climate. And uh, it would cost more to get them out <clears throat> than just leave them there. But in 1953, Edmund Hillary and his, part- and his partner made it. After 32 years of trying. Do you know how long it took the next guy? Two months. Wow. You see, when... A man sees another man do something that he once thought undoable. Something inside him rises up. Something swells. His soul recognizes in that moment there is more available to me if I only have the courage to pursue it. You see, and if he he can do it, then I can do it. And And I will do it. The first verse that I read tonight was about prophecy. It was about the last enemy to be put down. From that day on, there's, there's been a lot of prophecies about the Messiah. A lot of uh, words from prophets and verses and scriptures about, you know, one day there's going to be a man, there's going to be a man, there's going to be a man. And he's going he's gonna to defeat death. He's, he's going to put it down. We've gotten that promise 
over and over and over again that one day there will be one who's going to break that barrier first. For thousands of years, generation after generation after generation, the children of God have been eagerly anticipating that one. Who's it going to be? We know that what God said is true. We know that God keeps his promises. Eric just read so many verses that attest to that. God's going to keep his promises. God's promises will not fail. God's promises will not fail. And they, they handed down that promise, that prophecy of what a human would be capable of one day. The promise of a capacity without limits. A capacity that says... Death will have no hold on me. So many times, so many times. They heard the prophet, the prophecy so many times and heard it and heard it and heard it. It, be, it began to become existential. It, became, it started to become a folktale, a myth, an old wives tale maybe. Let's turn to John 11. Stop at verse 23 and say there when you're there. Yes. We've all read this verse a lot of times, but I think there's something more that we can glean from it on this reading. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. As you know, we're talking about Lazarus here. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. What is this response from Martha? See, Martha knew the story. Martha had been handed the promise, just like her forebears, just like her answers. You know, her response kind of reminds me of the silly things that we say sometimes. Oh, bless your heart. They're in a better place. God bless you. Yes, we know he's going to rise on the resurrection. Thank you. You know, we say these things out of habit. It's a habitual thing. It's not because we actually have any faith that what we're saying is true. The greatest promise that's ever been given to mankind They had been waiting so long that in Martha's eyes, she can't see that the man standing in front of her might be the one, that one that crushes the head of death and takes the keys to the grave. Let's go to John 21. You know, I I like this passage, but I do wish 
that it had a little more flair to it. Because, and I'm not trying to rewrite the Bible or anything, heaven forfend. But a straight reading of this, I don't, I don't think gives you the emotion. It doesn't give you the gravity of what's happening here. So just to give you a little background, this is uh, after the resurrection. Jesus is uh, presenting himself to the disciples um, a little bit at a time. But this one was particularly important because um, this was a handful of the disciples and some of Jesus' some of Jesus's closest friends. <clears throat> starting in verse 21. I'm sorry, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened in this way. Simon Peter, his Hakam, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder, James and John, and two other disciples. So we've got seven guys here. Peter says, I'm going out to fish, Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. You'll find out later because they're a hundred yards away. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of a large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, also known as John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred. So I read this and I can, I can glean a couple of things from it. First, you see the despair of the disciples. They just spent the last three years following around a man that they believed to be the Messiah. The, the man they believed would be the one to destroy death, to overcome it, achieve the resurrection. They believed that this man was setting up a precedent for what every single man that had come before them was going to do. And then he died. Why didn't they start... Going out, spreading the good. Why didn't they still go out and spread the news of the gospel? They thought themselves failures. So they went back to fishing. They went back to a drab lifestyle. And were emotionally hitting their rock bottom. So on the other side, how do you think that they felt? Whenever they saw Jesus standing there. Can you imagine what was going through their minds? Can you imagine the millions of thoughts all at once? He's alive! He's alive! He did it! The emotional burden of that moment must have been absolutely overwhelming. Not only was the man they loved returned to them. Not only was the one they saw tortured and killed returned to health. But the one, that one, had finally been revealed. The barrier had been broken. The limit had been dissolved. The capability 
had been redefined. They're thinking to themselves, the man standing in front of me is who we've heard tales about for thousands of years. Death had been overcome. Let's go to Isaiah 25. Sidebar, I like that one. Let's start in verse 7. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all of the earth. The Lord has spoken. This sums up exactly, in a technical and a logical sense, exactly what Jesus did here. He has destroyed the shroud, the barrier, the bubble, the limit, the myth. Gone, destroyed, evaporated. You know, I can see them there. Dripping wet from seawater and tears. The laughter and the joyous tears calm down. The sea breeze off the water, the only sound as they look at him and all. And then slowly something starts to shift in their mind. The granite cold realization begins to descend on their minds. And just like every runner on the sidelines, like every aspiring mountain climber and audience, one by one a little iron starts to crop into their bones. One by one they meet the same conclusion. I can do it too. I can overcome death. Because we've seen the way that he acts. We've seen the way that he talks. We've seen the way that he walks. And now we know what it's going to cost. Everything. It's going to cost everything. The precedent has been set. The limit has been abolished. The race before us is mapped out. Now comes the work. So they went from rock bottom, given up, false messiah, Two, I'm ready to freaking die. Let's let's go to Acts five. All it takes is death. But death is all it takes. Let's start out in verse 38. I I like this one too. Verse 35 and 37 and 36 are all good. But I'll go straight to 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if... Their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. 
But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So we've come forward in the timeline now. The disciples are on the road. The disciples are doing the work. They're putting in the time. So much that it's gotten the attention of the high priest, of the ruling class. And he attests to them that these men, these men will not be stopped. That they'll die first. And I'm not getting in the way if they turn out to be right. So here we can see that they did it. They didn't shy away. They didn't shy away from the work because they had been given the design plans. They had the strategy. They had the execution. And it was seared into their brains as to what it takes and what it costs. You know, as I was looking for... Uh, the the verse about Jesus meeting him at the boat, I stumbled across another, another verse. This will just be a bonus because it, it kind of affected me and it piqued my interest whenever I read it. So let's go to Matthew 28, 18. It's a simple verse. It comes, before the, it comes right before the Great Commission. It's another one of those verses that I think is understated. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth and on earth has been given to me. Given? Are you freaking kidding me? Given? With blood, sweat, tears, and death, Jesus earned the literal and figurative hell out of that authority and power. I wish that I could be a fly on the wall in hell whenever Jesus makes his descent. We have the apex, the alpha, the prime, the proto, entering hell as a lion among lemmings. And he goes and kicks Satan face, Satan's face in and takes the authority and dethrones the prince of this world. Amen. Given to him. Come on. I mean, I get it. It was given to him, but. Okay, but that was for free. Okay, so let's go to First Peter. Starting uh, chapter 1. Uh, Start in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of these things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent, Spirit sent from the heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. You know, I've often thought back to the men and women of old in, in the Old Testament. They lived according to what they were told. They lived according to what was revealed to them by God. 
They lived according to what the prophets told them. They, lived, they did their best to live in the way that had been shown to them. But really, it was all by faith. I mean, e- even Abraham, without the word of God, God says that he credited to him, credited to him the righteousness that it takes to achieve the resurrection simply because he believed. See, the one had not built, the one, that one, had not been revealed to anyone in those old days. Their plans were simple. Their strategy was straightforward. Just obey. Obey God, trust and believe. And as the years progressed, more and more revelation started to be poured out on on them. The building of the law, the building of the prophets, the building of the writings. The Lord was establishing His Word. The Lord was giving was giving his word generation at a time, generation at a time. His, his divine inspiration so that a roadmap or a program could be built. Let's go to Luke 12. Uh, let's start in verse 48. <clears throat> but the one who does not know and, and does... Uh, I'm sorry. The one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has entrusted with much, much will be asked. You see, that's kind of a... That's kind of a verdict against us. Because we have give, we've been given the, the, the completed word. You're holding it in your hands. Not only that, but we've been given the word made flesh. We not only have the instruction manual, we have the prototype. We have the instruction manual to achieve life, and we have the prototype of the one who achieved life. The one who achieved the resurrection. You see, every generation is responsible for what they know. And finally, we finally make it to the disciples. The word has been made flesh, and the example has been lived out. They were left with zero uncertainty about what it takes to achieve the resurrection. So what are we doing with it? If our limit has been redefined... What do we do? You know, have you ever thought to yourself, why? Why all this? Why did they strive to achieve a resurrection? What's this all for? Why not go into that long, dark slumber? Rest in peace. That long night. What are we after? What's the end game? What's God's end game? Because we know the cost, right? We know the cost is everything. We die to ourselves. We put others in front of ourselves. We don't live in a way that seeks self-gratification. What could be so great that we trade our very existence to achieve it? It better be something pretty good, huh? There's people being tortured out, out there. It better be something pretty great. It better be something that's eternal, surpassing, elusive, 
and of the greatest worth. Nothing can be greater than it, so by necessity it must be the greatest thing to have ever existed. We attain the resurrection for the greatest thing to have ever existed. Not just greatest to you, not just greatest to me, not just greatest objectively, but the greatest to God. Something so great that God bothered to do all of this. Why did he bother? What's the point? What's the greatest thing? Well, you're in in luck because after deep scriptural study and arduous, exhausting mental strain, I have found the answer. When you distill it down, there's only one main thing that God values above all else. Do you want to know what it is? Well, I'm going to tell you. But first, I'm going to tell you what it's not. Now, I've spoken at length about this to uh, Pastor Slaughter, Pastor Stevens, Sutherland, Piro, Nick, Peyton, Judah. We've thrown around some ideas. What's what's the greatest thing? Number one, bringing glory to God. Pretty great, right? Important to God? Yeah, pretty important, right? Greatest thing ever? No. Because if God only wanted glory, free will would not be a prerequisite. He could make robots that can glorify Him. He can make angels that sing His name, sing His glory all the time. He could do that. But He didn't. He gave us free will. The second one's pretty popular. I'd say a pretty strong case could be made for it. Number, number two is love. We were made to love, right? The only problem with that is that love can be one-sided. If God wanted to make something to love, he could have stopped at the creation before adding man to it. No. God wanted someone to reciprocate that love. So as a necessity, God made us with free will because when you have someone that you love... Love you in return, you get the greatest thing in all existence. Fellowship. Amen. See, God made us because He wants to be in fellowship with us. That's all He wants. He wants someone to be in fellowship with. Let's go to Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs done by the the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. You see, the disciples, when they left the Great Commission, they understood this. Because what we do on, on the earth is echoed in heaven. They saw that the most important thing that we can do is to be in fellowship with one another. See, God wants to be in our company. He longs for the day when sin is no longer a barrier to our uniting with Him in His literal presence. 
You see, you can have everything the world has to offer. Wealth uncountable. Power unfathomable. Influence, accolades, pedigree, scholarship, beauty, intellect. And if you don't have someone that loves you the way that God loves you, the only way that God can, you will be a wretched shell of a human. See, that's built into us. But of course, you all know this, right? I'm not breaking any new ground here. This is not an unsophisticated, unstudied collection of my colleagues. You know this, but what you may not have have considered is that humans, even if they're not a believer, even if they're not in the Word, they still reach out for fellowship. When I think about the different cultures of of, of the world, I think about their idea of heaven, their idea of the end all be all. It all points to fellowship. When you look at Buddhism, you join a great collective hive mind. See, but the problem with that is that you don't have love. There's no reciprocation. There's only presence. When you look at Hinduism or Islam, those are easy. They're just counterfeits of what's in the Bible. You go to a heaven where you get stuff. Wealth. Women. But what's lost there is that there's no fellowship with the Father. There's no fellowship among the brothers. It's all a very self-centered, self-seeking, self-gratifying reward for how you live on earth. See, because God had a different idea. And I, th- I think it could not be more evident than one of the first names that he gives his son. Let's, let's go to Matthew 1. Start in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with the child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, he's given us the blueprint. He's showing us in no uncertain terms exactly what he wants. He doesn't want to reward us. He doesn't want to reward himself. He just wants to be with us. And so whenever he sends down a flesh version of himself, I want his function to be, because Jews look at a name as function, I want his function to be God with us. And everyone that was surrounded by him knew that. And everyone that came into his presence knew that that's the only place that they wanted to be. Finally, let's look at a couple of other ideas of a false fellowship. The, the Nordic people groups believe that you go to Valhalla. Valhalla is a grand battle. And you fight all day, die, feast all night, wake up and do it again. 
But you see, that's an aggression. That's a false fellowship. That's a fellowship of self-gratification. And that's not what the Lord has implemented. I found this interesting too. In the Sikh religion, their sacred texts say, as long as the mind is filled with the desire for heaven, he does not dwell at the Lord's feet. The company of the holy ones is heaven. Even people from back cult, from incorrect cultures, from foreign cultures that are not filled with the word, can see that at the end of the day, you want to be in fellowship. And it's our job to show them what the right fellowship looks like. Amen. See, they're trying to reach their capacity through this false fellowship. Let's go to Mark 3. Start in verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted. You can stop right there, man. He called to them. Why? He wanted them. Why go? Why? Why all of this? Oh, he's trying to set up a pattern. No. He just wanted them. He wanted to be in their company. And we should want the same things. Not only in his company, but to be in the fellowship and the company of all of our brothers around us. Because that is where we succeed. Let's go to Hebrews 11. Now you know it's going to be good when we go to Hebrews, right? 11 is always good too. Start in verse 40. And if it's not clear after this, then I don't know what to tell you. You know what? Let's move back. Let's go to 39. So we just got done hearing about all the heroes, all of the, the powerhouses of the, of, of the faith. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised to them. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You see, Jesus broke the barrier, but no one else has because he's trying to tell us something. The important thing is to do it together. Everyone that's come before us is still waiting on us. They're watching us. They're with us. Now, if, if I know this and you know this, this is, not un, this is not things that we don't know. I'm not telling you anything you have not heard before. If we know this, what do you think the enemy knows? If he knows that fellowship is the thing that completes us, if he knows that fellowship is the thing that spurs on all of us to reach our capacity what do you think his number one method of attack is he wants you alone and he wants you separated there is no faster way 
to get out of fellowship with God than to get out of fellowship with the church body. Now, I'll say it again. There is no faster way to get out of fellowship with God than to get out of fellowship with your brothers. When you think back to times in your life, whenever you were struggling, whenever you were chained up in sin, was it when you were alone? Was it whenever you were separated? And when were you strongest? When you're with each other. When we're in fellowship. I can remember driving back from a, a place I wasn't supposed to be. You ever catch your, your eye in, in the rearview mirror? What are you doing? Where are you? Who are you with? What activities are you participating in? And Why? Do you feel fulfilled right now? All these thoughts start streaming through my conscience. But whenever I'm with my brothers, and whenever we're singing or praying, playing, smoking, incense for the health benefits, I have no fear of catching my eye in the mirror. I have no thoughts of conscience. What am I doing? Where am I? I know exactly where I am. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm in the presence of God because I'm in the, I'm in the presence of my brothers and my sisters. I love these people and they love me. You know, sometimes we trick ourselves. Well, I don't have to go every Sunday, Right? I mean, not every Sunday. I'm not going to be a weirdo about it. You know, I need to recharge. I'll take this weekend off. You know what? It'll be good because I'll be ready to go Monday at Foundations. I'll be refreshed, ready to rock. And then what happens Monday? Oh, gosh. I don't want to explain to all these people why they didn't see me Sunday. I'm totally not speaking from experience. You know what? I need to work late Monday, get a jump start on the week. That way on Wednesday I can fellowship late. I stay up. And you know what? The cycle goes on and on. The cycle goes on and on and Satan's got you out. Out of the herd. He's got you alone. And now unchecked sin is crouching at your door. Let's go to James 1. Not even that far. Let's go to 14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away. Away from what? The herd. Dragged away. Jesus is, or James is using a bit of a metaphor here. An alliteration of to put something in your mind of a group and you're being pulled out of that group. The picture that that paints in my mind is pretty stark. Dragged away. You see, 
Satan can pull you away from the group. And he knows that that's how he's, he's going to get you. But see, there's a twist. And this is the real twist. Like a twisting knife in your side. The enemy knows that even after he's dragged you away, there's still something inside of you that yearns for that fellowship. There's still that peace, that God-sized hole that yearns for being among brothers and sisters. So you know what he does? Not only is he going to separate you, but he will bring other separatists to you. You know what? I'm going to say that again. Not only is he going to separate you, but he's going to bring other separatists to you. I don't have to go. I don't have time to go into it, but that it creates a kind of toxic unity of some sort. But that's not here when I'm but that's not what I'm going to talk about here tonight. Um, Because while the enemy can influence you and he. And he can separate you from the body. What he can't do is separate you from the Father. You see, that authority has been stripped from him. Separating you from the Father is something only you can do. The enemy is no longer in a position to level evidence against you. His entire strategy now is to get you separated and to get you trapped in your sin so that you sink yourself. He wants you picking up your own chains, putting them on your shoulders. He wants you hamstringing yourself and then hand the knife to to your brother. Because he knows the capacity to which we've been called. He's seen it firsthand. He's seen it like a kick in the face. Literally, he's seen it like a kick in the face. He sees the preeminent power that we have with but a word. The favor of a God in our corner. The authority of a son of the king at our disposal. And he knows the price that's been paid for our resurrection. And the only way to keep you from achieving it is to keep you in your sin. Keep you separated. Let's go to John 16. What a great word. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. He's lost his place. He's no longer in a position like we read in Job Job, that he can go before the Father and be an adversary against you. Only your own sin can do that. No one can lose your case for you but you. You know, this reminds me of a, a case that I had about eight months back. It's a very important case. It's a case that I lost. 
pretty hard. Looking back now, I would say that it's a case that drove a rod of iron into my spine. And it's a case that I consider with every new case that I get. So in, in family court, it goes like this. The side that files the initial petition gets to go first. They prove up their case, present their evidence, bring up witnesses, extract testimony, make arguments for your relief. And then it's up to the opposing attorney to deflect, rebut, quash any evidence that they can, and then to present his own evidence. It's going to counteract that. Now, in this case, the opposing attorney was a snake. He was old and experienced. He was crafty. He was shrewd. He was a serpent. So I went up, I presented my case, put on all my evidence, told my side's narrative, got the testimony out, and then I rested. I rested my case. The judge looked at opposing counsel. Your, your honor, he said, my esteemed colleague, Mr. Phillips, his case is defective for these three reasons. And I ask at this time for a default judgment uh, granted against his client and in favor of mine. And you know what the judge said? Granted. He presented no evidence. He made no arguments. He didn't even call his own client to the stand. He knew that I had sunk myself because of my deficient offerings. He knew that if he just let my product stand, it would be found wanting. So what is the sin that you have that is an offering that is deficient? What is the thing that's separating you from fellowship? What is the thing that is separating you from the Father? Because the devil isn't going to come in front of you and he's not going to go before the Father and tell him everything that you did wrong. Only your own sin can do that. You can all stand with me tonight. You know, I think back to a, a time whenever I, w- I was given a clear call to repentance. We were at a, we were at a foundations meeting. And it had wrapped up, and we, were, and we were praying and standing, and Matt was playing some songs on the guitar, and we were just about done. And then one of the sisters gives a, a, pro, a, gives a prophecy. It was a call to repentance. And she said, right here, right now, some, someone needs to repent. 
And man, through my head, I said, God, that feels like a cannonball going through my chest. And not three seconds later, Eric says verbatim, if you feel like a cannonball just went through your chest, that call is for you. Man, my legs were shaking, sweat running down my spine, jaw clenched. Not five seconds later, a brother of mine calls out and says, I want to repent for the exact thing that's in Keith's mind right now. Now, that's not actually what he said, but it may as well, it may as well have been. It's like the Holy Spirit rolled out the red carpet, set up the microphone, and then had a brother go first to show you. There's no shame. No shame. You can do this. My legs were shaking. My, 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 my hands are clenched. My jaw is shaking. My breathing is labored. My whole body is convulsing. And all I can hear through my entire mind is the Holy Spirit saying, Coward! You're a coward! What else do I have to do to get you to understand that your sin is separating you from the Father? But my jaw was clenched, and I was ashamed. And the, and the next time there was a call for repentance, weeks later, the Holy Spirit said, Coward. Keith, you're a coward. And then the next time, weeks later, services later, he said, Coward. And then the next time, he said, You see, because my heart had been seared. I had draped chains over myself, shackled my ankles, shackled my neck to the ground, shackled my arms. Soulless, thoughtless, dead inside. And whenever my sin finally did get revealed, and it always does, and it always will, it was a colossal embarrassment, shame upon me and my family. And all I had to do was repent. All I had to do was trust that my brothers would love me and correct me. Please, please don't miss the opportunity to leave those chains at this altar. Lord Jesus, we come to you tonight. Lord, we thank you that we get to set a capacity that is higher than what we ever imagined. Lord, we thank you for blessing us with a community and a fellowship, brothers, fathers, sisters, mothers that will hold us accountable and help us to reach what you know that we are capable of. God, we love you.